It's Monday, February 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The State of the Union address is finally happening tomorrow, and it comes at a time where there are various problems on all sides. The Mueller probe could be nearing an end while it continues to indict people closer to the president, and the ongoing battle to avert another government shutdown or national emergency looms. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for a preview of the big speech. Next, what's the best way to recover after a big game or hard workout? Is it best to take an ice bath, use a foam roller, wear compression tights, or what about a good old-fashioned massage? Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science, joins us to break down the benefits of each and what actually works for muscle recovery. Finally, we are at the peak of flu season and hopefully you didn't get sick. But what do you do if a coworker comes in sick? As some show up to the office coughing and sneezing, the sick shamers are springing into action. Chip Cutter, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about why some come into work sick and why others shame them into going home. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think it's unification. I think it's uh, industry. And we've had incredible Republican support. The problem is the Democrats, you know, when they say we don't want to build a wall because it doesn't work or because it's immoral. Well, it's also immoral. The people that come into our country that shouldn't be here and kill people. That's immoral. too. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. The State of the Union is tomorrow. We all know it had been postponed from January 29th to February 5th. Let's get a little preview of what to expect. The president has said to reporters that the theme of his State of the Union address is going to be unity. This is one of the biggest platforms that the president gets to roll out his vision for the next year. He is supposed to be delivering sort of a progress report, a report card on America, letting Congress know how things are going. This has been one that's going to come at an interesting time since we are off of the longest shutdown in history, coming only weeks before. Now they could shut the government down again. Seems a little precarious to be weighing in on the state of the country. And you're right, he's talking about unity. Although we know the president has a reflexive nature to go towards some of his most divisive positions, including his wall. We still expect to hear him talk about the need for a wall on the southern border although his aides have been pushing him not to use the word wall. We saw him tweeting last week that it needed to be a wall or a barrier or whatever you want to call it. it. Let's call it a wall. A wall is a wall. You know, he's saying all that. Exactly. So this is his opportunity to lay out his vision. And it's also an opportunity for him to try to start his reelection case to say, here's what I have done. And here is how America is under two years of my presidency. And here's what I want to do next. And that's going to be a piece of his argument when he goes back to the electorate in 2020. What have other presidents in the past done when they're facing big things? I mean, the president is getting it from all sides right now. He's got this big issue with the border wall going on, the increasing news of the Mueller probe and Roger Stone being indicted, things like that. What does history tell us that he should do? Should he address it all? head on? Is he going to be coy about it? What do we think? History has offered us a myriad of options. He could allude to it or address it. He could try punt it, especially parts of things like the Mueller probe, acknowledging that there are what he might call distractions to his administration and that they should move on from such distractions. We saw President Clinton take such an approach in his State of the Union addresses. I think that these speeches are interesting. When President Trump 
gets up and speaks most of the time. He does so without a script. And we get a real unvarnished look at what the president is thinking and how the president feels. This is a scripted speech. This is a speech on a teleprompter. And in instances where he's done that, we've seen times where he's, he's abandoned it and gone off script. We've seen times where he's given a scripted speech that is lauded and praised and it sounds very presidential, people will say, and it sounds like a man trying to turn the page and bring in unity. And then we've seen some that are quite dark. The first example of a unity speech would be the address he gave before Congress in 2018. I think we look back at his nominating speech, that was quite a dark speech, and it was not one that was seen as trying to, to increase unity. And both of those are examples where, where he read from a script. Stacey Abrams, the former Georgia gubernatorial candidate, is going to deliver the Democratic response to the State of the Union address. It's an interesting pick because she holds no public office right now. But what does this signal to the country that Chuck Schumer and the Democrats chose her to give this response? First and foremost, I think it probably signals that Chuck Schumer really wants her to run for the Senate in Georgia against Senator Perdue in 2020. But more so than that, there was a lot of criticism that after Stacey Abrams lost her race, as did Beto O'Rourke in Texas, there was all this talk about Beto running for president and no talk about Stacey Abrams, who lost by a narrower margin, who was an African-American woman who had stoked a lot of excitement among the base of her electorate being considered for 2020. I don't think... That this is her launching a 2020 bid, but it is her trying out for Democrats how they can message against Trump and how they can stand up next to him or after him and criticize his administration. Guests for the State of the Union are always so important. The president has signaled he is going to be inviting guests that will be border related, possibly people who have been wronged by immigrants in the country. And then on the Democratic side, they're inviting a Guatemalan native who was an undocumented worker from one of the golf clubs for President Trump, for the Trump organization. So it's going to be a battle of messaging right here. The president has repeatedly liked to point to the families of those whose family members may have been killed by a drunk driver who was an undocumented immigrant or was the victim of some other type of crime related to undocumented immigrants, attempting to sort of paint all immigrants as being criminals, although we know that that is clearly not true. But it is a, a story that he believes has worked quite well for him in convincing people. And on the Democratic side, they're going to be trying to juxtaposition that. I think we can also expect to see shooting victims, the family of shooting victims, which has been a frequent Democratic invitee. I think we could also expect to see some federal workers there, people who were left without paychecks over the last month. That's another one that Democrats are expected to include in the State of the Union. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. While often these recovery tools do alleviate the pain associated with delaying onset muscle soreness or DOMS, they don't always help your muscles recover better, and sometimes they can often inhibit muscle recovery. Joining us now is Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor at Popular Science. You guys there at Popular Science are just wrapping up your series on Muscle Month for January. So you guys did a, a range of different stories, all dedicated to the muscles in the human body. We saw your article actually pretty interesting. 
And I've been curious about all of these things that you wrote in here. So it's perfect to have you on, but we're talking about muscle recovery and what works and what doesn't work after uh, a workout. Everybody gets that little bit of soreness. Sometimes people like it because it, you know, it's showing that you actually did something, but you know, sometimes it comes with a little bit of pain. There's all sorts of recovery techniques that people use. Tell us a little bit about this. And then we'll start with the first one that I've always been curious about is are the ice baths, but tell us a little bit about muscle month and, and all this other stuff. You know, everyone is starting January 1st throughout the month of January. You can see everyone flocks to the gym, you know, tries to start their New Year's resolutions. So we started ours by trying to, to dive into the science behind it. So I was particularly interested in these recovery tools because you see them all the time at gyms and at sports stores and things like that. And I really wanted to know, you know, how well do they work? And interestingly, what I found was that first, the reason that so many people flock to use these techniques is because after you work out, there's a lot of pain from running or from weightlifting, and that pain is actually caused by something called delayed onset muscle soreness, and it happens about 24 to 48 hours after you work out. People then use these recovery tools, and so the question is, do they actually help our muscles recover? And from the talking to a couple of researchers and looking into the studies, it was interesting what I found that while often these recovery tools do alleviate the pain associated with delayed onset that muscle soreness or DOMS, they don't always help your muscles recover better. And sometimes they can often inhibit muscle recovery. Let's start with ice baths because I see a lot of professional athletes do this. And just for me, it just seems like it's so uncomfortable to sit in a bath of ice cold water for however long you need to do it. So how effective is that one? You would think it has to be somewhat effective, at least for alleviating pain, because who would actually do it if it didn't help? So what I found was the idea behind it is that these super cool temperatures are supposed to reduce the swelling and inflammation that comes with muscle performance. So when you work your muscles a, a huge amount, they get a little bit of swelling and inflammation. And it's not so much that you see, but you feel it in, in pain. And so by reducing the swelling, it's thought to then reduce the muscle damage, reduce the pain. But interestingly, while it does reduce the swelling and that does reduce the pain, you actually need that swelling and need that inflammation to help your muscles recover. It's actually part of the recovery process. So by reducing it, you do alleviate the pain, but you stall your muscle recovery. So if you are going to do it, the best time to do an ice bath is when you don't have a big performance the next day or you don't have a huge training session the next day because your muscles aren't going to perform as well because this recovery has been stalled a little bit. Another one that I was very curious about was compression tights because you see that everywhere across the board. Basketball players, uh, you can see them wearing the whether they're shorts or on their arms, things like that. How do compression tights work? The idea behind compression tights is that they're originally meant for medical purposes. So for people who had circulatory conditions or right after surgery, and the idea behind them is that they're meant to increase blood flow. And this increase in blood flow for athletics is then thought to increase the clearance blood laxate and creatinine kinase. And both of these are released from your muscles during vigorous exercise, and they're sort of a sign of muscle damage. So if you increase the blood circulation, then this increases blood flow. So researchers say that 
this does work. It doesn't work any better than any of the other recovery techniques, so it's not this amazing thing. But it's also best if you are going to use it, it's best to wear them after you perform your activities or after you run or after you play basketball and not during, which a lot of athletes actually do tend to use it during. And researchers have found that it's it's not effective at all. It seems like everything is minimal, the benefits. It, it, like I said, it's very particular to the person, I guess. What about good old-fashioned stretching? I've always subscribed yeah to that. I think I've always felt the best if I give a few good stretches, but what do we say about that? Yeah, so after writing this article, I think if anyone asked me, you know, if you were to recommend one thing, I would say stretching because you don't have to use any specific devices. You don't have to have any fancy clothing or equipment. The thing with stretching, though, if you remember back from gym class or from elementary school PE class, you would sit around in a circle and sort of stretch one arm or one leg at a time, and that's called static stretching, and researchers have actually found that that's not really useful and getting your body ready for exercise because it doesn't actually warm up your muscles. And they found that warmer muscles, actually increasing the temperature of your muscles, helps them perform better and then recover better after. And so to warm up your muscles with stretching, you should do something called dynamic stretching, which stretches your muscles but does it more in a way that you're doing normal activities. So maybe a light jog or stretching while walking forward. There's a bunch of different techniques. Static stretching is still important, but it's better to do after you exercise. So static stretching, that sitting around in a circle kind of thing, doing one arm or one leg at a time does help range of motion and things like that but it's better after. Check out all these uh, mm-hmm. Muscle Month articles on Popular Science. Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor at Popular Science, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. I talked to some folks who have asked their colleagues to quarantine themselves in a nearby meeting room. In one case, someone got in early before her colleague and just started sanitizing his desk and everything he touched, you know, just spraying disinfectant everywhere. Joining us now is Chip Cutter, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. We're hitting just about the peak of flu season. We still have some more time to go through it. But you wrote an article about people that get sick and then still come into work. And then the sick shamers that swing into action to tell them to go home. In our business of uh, radio and podcast, obviously our health is very important. If, if you can't speak or something like that, then you really can't work. So I know there's a lot of people over here that are constantly, you know, following people around with disinfectant, things like that, things that you mentioned <laughs> in your article. So I know these things all too well, but tell us about the sick shamers. We've all been there. We've all been around an open office where colleagues are coughing and sniffling and sneezing around us. And so a number of workers are kind of taking this into their own hands. And there really is kind of a spectrum of shaming that's out there. On the extreme end, you have people who are screaming across their office floors, you know, go home, get out of here. And then on the other hand, you have people who are a little more quiet about it, but they might do exactly what you described, follow someone around with disinfectant. I talked to some folks who have asked their colleagues to quarantine themselves in a nearby meeting room. In one case, someone got in early before her colleague and just started sanitizing his desk and everything he touched, you know, just spraying disinfectant everywhere. And so I think a lot of workers kind of feel like they need to take matters into their own hands. They're not only grossed out by their colleagues, but they just want to make sure they don't don't get sick. It could lead to a lot of different things. Like, as you mentioned, the coworker cleaning the other person's desk. I mean, that could be a little insulting somehow. Uh, saying, hey, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not that sick. You know, don't worry about it. Like, mind your own business kind of thing. You know, I could totally see these dynamics playing out. Let's go in a little deeper. You know, why do people have this compulsion that they feel like they have to come in to work? And a lot of it, I know, has to do with the workplace culture. But I think that holds very true. I mean, sometimes people feel like they cannot take those sick days. 
I think that is such an important point here. And, and it really oftentimes depends on your relationship with your individual boss. Oftentimes people just feel guilty. They feel like I'm just not sick enough to take that sick day, even if they do have paid time off. And so people oftentimes will come into the office when they're sick, maybe because they feel guilty about it. They feel like they have to show up in order for people to really believe that they're sick, perhaps. And it, oftentimes there's just these feelings, oftentimes concerned that they're just not sick enough to do it. And so they prefer to come into the office and get some work done and show everyone that they're committed to their jobs. But a number of people have told me that it really starts from the top and that bosses have to set an example. And so they can do that by when they're sick, for example, actually taking time off and not, not dialing into those conference calls and not you know sending a bunch of emails. Just take time to rest. That will set the tone for everyone else to do the same. There was an interesting word in, in your article that you said that academics call it presenteeism. Like, uh, you know, we yeah. either love our job or insecurity about taking the time off. We have to be here in some form or another. Well, this just goes to show that there are academic fields for everything, right? I was not that familiar with the the, uh, the the whole field of presenteeism until we started kind of reporting this story. But there are academics who study this, and it's obviously the opposite of absenteeism. And you would think that presenteeism would result in a lack of productivity, for example. That if you're coming to the office sick and you're not at your peak, you're probably not doing as best as, as you could. And that is true to an extent. But a number of the, the professors that I spoke with also said that, no, 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 you actually, the fact that you're coming in, you're still getting more done than you would, for example, if you stayed at home with a box of Kleenex and were just watching movies and trying to recover. But there is, there's this kind of these deep, these, these questions of why people come to the office when they're, when they're sick. And one of the professors I spoke with said that there's oftentimes a lot of hypocrisy around this. You know, we really get frustrated by this behavior in others. You know, how dare someone come to the office when they're not well, but then we do it ourselves, right? We just, we feel like, well, it doesn't, doesn't apply to us. We're not that sick. Let's, let's come in and get some work done. You wrote this article and obviously there's, uh, you've got a lot of feedback for it, hundreds of emails. What did people tell you in their responses to what you wrote originally? Some of the emails were just downright funny. Some people wanted to share their own strategies for how they shame people. My favorite was someone who told me about a colleague who put a note on their boss's door that said, hey, phlegm boy, go home. That is something that I had not heard before. And so I guess this boss, he really had a, a bad habit of coming in. And so the colleagues tried to do subtle things like giving him cough drops and that sort of thing. And it just didn't work. You have, so to, finally have, a, someone... you have to have a good <laughs> yeah. relationship with your boss, though, too, if you're going to be calling him phlegm boy. It's really true. I don't know if I could ever do that or see any of my uh, colleagues doing that, but this person felt like they had a place to do that. And so some of it was responses like that, but then also a number of people just made the point that they can't work from home or they can't stay home, that they just don't have bosses who would respect that. And they felt that they had to come in just because that was the tone that their managers had set. Some said, for example, that they still had the same deadlines to, to hit or that even if they did take time off to be sick, their bosses would still expect them to answer the phone or still respond to emails. And so they said, it's just not as easy as it might seem to just stay at home, get some rest, and then come back to work. Oftentimes, there were other other issues at play that made it difficult. Yeah, it really isn't as easy as it seems. It, where we work, we're very clear about, hey, if you're sick, stay home. You know, we don't want everybody else getting sick, all that stuff. But I'm guilty of it myself. You know, if I, I even if I feel a little sick or off, I'll still come in. It's like, oh, man, you know, I have so much on my plate. I, I can't afford to not come in, not even for the money issues, just for like the workflow and, and all the responsibilities. And it's just difficult to reconcile sometimes. So, I mean, this is going to be going on forever, I feel like. And I just got to get ready for all the sick shamers to tell you, to yell at you and tell you to go home. 
That's it. And, and I was, uh, you know, one thing that we wanted to do in this story was to make sure that we talked to the shamies, the people who were at the receiving end of this feedback. And one thing that I thought was interesting is a lot of them said that they actually appreciated it in some ways, that they said it was a nice reminder to them to be like, oh, wait, am I, am I actually sicker than I think I am? Do I need to kind of take a step back and actually prioritize my health in some way? And I thought that was a good lesson for all of us, that oftentimes we can get so swept up in just the chaos of, of work and all of our deadlines, everything we have to do. But sometimes it's just a matter of stepping back and saying, you know, would I be better off just taking a day or two and coming back? Chip Cutter, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Always fun to talk. Thanks for having me on. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.